It is traditional to begin every Middle East meeting at least 15 minutes late. I hope you will forgive me for not doing so this afternoon. But I think that uh, Munquith has a lot to present. And I think my role in introducing him is not to explain that he's one of the leading pollsters, analysts of developments in Iraq. Many of you already know that and have been here at previous uh, sessions. I think what really strikes me in introducing him is how much we have tended to focus on ISIS and on the war against extremism as defined in Syria and Iraq and how little we have tended to focus on the aftermath and what will happen once the election takes place and the issue becomes not simply security but civil government. If I could have the first slide. This is only a partial list of the mix of civil and military areas of instability. This new government that, to some extent, Bunquith is going to help us try to predict, uh, is going to have to deal with. And yes, all of the issues we are now dealing with will still be there. But I think what we have perhaps understated in looking at the challenges this government faces is the depth of the civil dimension. The next slide, please. In my own travels to Iraq, which began in the early 70s, it was always clear that we were dealing with a country which had massive problems in coming to grips with its economy, structurally, and in terms of any coherent approach to development. Anyone who was in Iraq during the Iran-Iraq War was aware of the fact that the country gradually went bankrupt between 1979 and 1984. It survived by borrowing from its neighbors, but just consider that date. 1980, perhaps, was the beginning of the problem. 1984, it was a crisis level. And from 1984 to the present, there has never been a year of stable development, stable economics, or any stable pattern of civil society in Iraq. That chart you see here basically isn't attempting to estimate what it costs to fix the problem because it's talking about the gap in development through all of 2014. I chose it because it's an Arab development report. It's an estimate coming from the Arab world and not the United States. If you look carefully at the most, I think, useful analysis of where this is headed, which is the World Bank's system diagnostic, which was issued in February of last year, you get a much clearer picture of just how critical this lack of development is. And it is not a matter of recovery or reconstruction. It is the fact that you have for decades seen the failure to tailor development to rates 
that meet any of the needs of a very sharply growing population. Next slide. We often in the United States, I think, focus too much on human rights and democracy, not because they're not important, but because they are not the primary process of government. The primary process of government is to serve citizens in the areas that are shown in these charts. And I think they are fair in several respects. I did not see during the time that I was in Iraq during the war after 2003 that we had actually managed to seriously improve the process of government. Partly that was the process of fighting. Partly it was the fact so many institutions were affected early in the war. And the primary effort in many ways had to be recovery. But there are two figures up there that I think will really be critical to this oncoming election. One is corruption. Why? Because time and again, it's one of the best indications of how people actually view their country in terms of how it functions. Corruption in survey after survey is the area of the greatest single sensitivity. You would think it would be security. But if it is not corruption, it is employment, and usually it's both. The other figure I put up there is one that people, I think, also forget. We tend to focus so much on ISIS that we forget that ISIS is only really been responsible for about a third of the civil violence in Iraq. One problem is if you don't count violent incidents, but only count terrorist incidents, you sharply understate the impact of ethnic, sectarian, and other differences. The figure up there, incidentally, is the highest start estimate of ISIS. It's probably actually an exaggeration of the role that ISIS has had in dealing with civil society. The next slide simply makes a point that I think most of you are all too well aware of. We keep hearing about oil wealth. But the truth is that it, by and large, in most OPEC countries, does not exist. It is essentially something that brings you to the edge of development incomes. But it does so generally by moving money through a very narrow group of people at the top, and not through broad, balanced development. And from the viewpoint of Iraqis, certainly if you look at the income, even assuming it was properly distributed, you would see that you have not had the same level of development that you have seen in other countries. The last slide, again, years ago there used to be this word in international development sometimes even in international relations, known as demographics. People actually used to worry a little about population pressure. Well, take a look at the population pressure that has affected Iraq. This is, according to the World Bank, 
the country in the MENA region which has the highest single rate of pressure on employment. That's an arguable figure. I think the statistics are very uncertain. But it is very clear that the number of young men and women who are either unemployed directly or are essentially in make work government and state owned enterprises is one of the most critical aspects that this new government will have to deal with. And now, Monquith, it is up to you to explain how Iraqi politics are going to solve all of these problems <laughs> and produce a government that can actually deal with them. Please. Thank you. Thank you for your attendance and please, as usual, to be here in this uh, important uh, think tank. And uh, what I will present today is expectations about the next election. As you know that on May 12th, we will have the next parliament or national election in Iraq. And uh, during the last month, uh, my team uh, have conducted or has conducted uh, over 7,000 interviews. So before going that, I, I would like to, to think, uh, thank my team, my clients who agreed to share these data with you, and of course the CSIS team who are wonderful, always helpful in uh, sharing these data and exposing Iraq here. So the methodology of what I will present here is based on face-to-face uh, -face household interviews, over 7,000 interviews uh, conducted uh, from between 22nd of February to 22nd of March. So it's still very fresh. Uh, all interviews conducted via computer-assisted personal interview CAPI system, so for quality control. Uh, we are uh, following the most updated criteria of quality control in the world. So we trace our interviewer, we have their uh, interviews uh, coordinate, uh, we audio record the interviews, we do all these things to verify that the data which we will receive is a real data. Uh, the sample is a probability random sample. Margin of error is uh, plus minus 2%. And uh, this also will incorporate 16 focus groups conducted also during the last month about the, the election. Uh, also, I will share some 2014 exit poll data uh, I've conducted on 2014. The, first ever uh, exit poll in, in Iraq. So I will share some, some of this data here 
to give some background and to compare between 2014 and what is expected for 2018. So the general background, I will go through this uh, quickly just to give uh, a general picture about the landscape on 2014 election. So most people, they divide it between uh, voting for secular Islamic party or mixed parties. And as you can see here, it's by age group. There are no differences between in age groups between those who voted for secular parties versus those who voted for uh, the Islamic parties. And uh, parties voted for by educational level, as you can see, that uh, also the, there are no significant uh, differences between different level, meaning that Iraqis have not voted according to their education, educational level or uh, according to their ages, etc. Mainly they voted uh, as they always voted during the last four uh, election based on their uh, ethno-sectarian affiliation. And as you can see here, on 2014, around 93% of Shias voted for Islamic parties versus 6% of Sunnis who voted for Islamic parties. Uh, this is so important to keep it in our mind when I will show what is expected right now. That was on 2014, now we are coming to the 2018. And uh, you may surprise with some of these data which will be shown here. As you can see here, the, uh, the, turn, the expected turnout for the next election is around 55%. Those who say that we are certainly vote, we will certainly vote. So we, uh, I have not put those who say that not certain or would not vote, so 55% of total Iraq. The, the good news right now is that Sunnis percent who will vote are more than Shias. And this will be for the first time, uh, except 2010. It was like this, 2010 uh, um, election. This 50 expected 55%, based on my experience with the Iraqi election, then I expect that no more than right now, if, if it happened today, no more than 40% will will really, uh, because mostly people, they expressed their willingness to, to participate, but actually it's not like, like this. So reasons for 
election boycott, those who say that we won't uh, vote, mostly they don't trust the system. Different reasons because they don't trust the system. It's, it's, uh, uh, they don't believe that it will make a difference, a real difference. So these are the reasons, no point in doing election among uh, Sunnis, 66%, uh, those who say that we won't vote. Only those who say we won't vote. And as uh, Professor Kordsman correctly referred to it, the most or the top two issues for the next election will be corruption and job. So they will, or, or uh, employment. So Iraqis will vote for those who will address these two important issues. Integrity of candidates, which means it's not corrupted, and who seeks to find jobs for us. For the sake of this uh, analysis, I have divided or I have grouped Iraqi provinces into three main groups. So we have, as you will see, we will have uh, a Sunnis provinces, meaning by Sunnis provinces, Ninawa, Salah al-Din, and Ambar. We have uh, Shia's provinces, which are the nine provinces in the south of, of Iraq. And we have a mixed provinces. The mixed provinces are Baghdad, Diyala, and Kirkuk. So uh, I have made this grouping to make it easier for the audience to understand the, because usually in Iraq, all politics since 2003, uh, the main uh, criteria which govern it is sectarianism. So that's why I created that. And of course, Kurd as a separate uh, group. Now, I will present the data about the voting intentions based on two scenarios. The first scenario, the general perceptions regardless of voting intentions. So all those people in Iraq, whether they say that we will vote or will not vote, they express their opinions about who do they prefer for the next election or if they will participate, then for whom they will vote. So this is the prediction. This is the prediction. Al-Abadi Alliance, which is called Al-Nasr, it will have, I don't know if it's the pointer. How can I use the pointer? It is just to, two points to some point, anyway. So 72%, uh, sorry, 72 expected seats, 72 expected 
seats of the next parliament will be for Al-Ibadi Alliance. The next will be Al-Fatih. Al-Fatih, which is the coalition of the uh, Al-Hajd al-Shaabi or the PMF, the, the different uh, militias in, in Iraq, they will get 37 seats. Okay. So, and the next is Sairun, and Sairun is the new entity or the new coalition between Sadrist and Communist. I know it's, uh, <laughs> but that's that's how it is. And then we have. The state of law, Al-Maliki, 19. And Al-Salam, which is the new name for both big Kurdish parties, PUK, KDP, they will take 18. And then the other, as you can say, oh, Lawatani Al-Lawi will get 15. The second scenario. For those who said that we are certain to vote, almost certain or certain to vote, we will not notice a big differences here, except Al-Abadi will jump to 78 seats. And Fatah will remain 37. And Wataniya Alawi will go down to 14. The Al Salam will be 21. So, to compare between the two scenarios, oh no, before comparing the two scenarios, the small parties, we have a local small parties in different provinces, like in Ambar. They are running only in these provinces, not on the national level. So I collect or aggregate all of them and, uh, group and group them. In Sunni's area, 27% of the votes will go to these small parties. In Shias, only 4% will go to the small parties. Uh, mixed areas, 8%. Uh, Kurdish area, 4%. But but this can make big difference in the next election. So to compare between the two scenarios, as you can see, the eligible vote and the certain vote. For Nasr or Al-Ibadi, for uh, uh, eligible vote, he will get 72. For certain vote, or certain voters, they will get, uh, or he will get, his coalition, I mean, 78. Uh, and for uh, Fatih Al-Amiri, I mean, 37 will remain 37. So, uh, most of his 
supporters will certainly vote for him. And uh, state of law, it's the same. Uh, Sa'irun also will jump from 27 to 29 if the expectations are correct. And Al-Salam uh, from 18 to 21. This is very interesting thing I want to share with you. Based on the numbers which I got, there are main expected changes in the Iraqi political landscape. I've tried to use the right word so I avoid to make any judgment whether these uh, changes are good or bad. So, what are these? It's still evolving. These changes are still evolving, but moving in a more pragmatic direction. I don't want to say that it's moving in a good or bad direction. It's in a more pragmatic direction. And so, the numbers show that we are moving from ethno-sectarian polarization to new and different alignments. Moving from ideology to pragmatism. And as you can see, putting Sadrist with commun uh, communists, it's a pragmatic <coughs> approach. Uh, leaving religious sectarian identifications. The, the good thing about this election, very, very few parties or coalitions use the name of Islam. Even Islamic parties, like, uh, uh, for, for instance, a Dawah party, they avoid using the word of Islam in, in their list names. Uh, Sadrist, uh, all others. So they are leaving religious sectarian identification and also from sub-identity to a national identity. I can see evidence that Iraqis are moving in that direction. And I will show this, I will share this evidence with you. From ethno-sectarian groupings to prospective and retrospective evaluations. All previous elections based on the affiliation. Whether you are Shia or Sunni, you will vote for this or that. Right now, uh, I may call it a more rational decision by voters, so they, uh, though Carl advised me not to, to, to to use rational as expression for that, because it might be a different thing here. But people in general, they will base their uh, decision to vote not on an ethno-sectarian affiliation. Increased responsiveness to domestic voter concern as opposed to outside influences. And this is another good news. The 
The outside influences will remain, but it will be much lower. And the way how I can see different lists behaving, uh, they are trying at least to show, whether it's true or not, at least to show that they are more responsive to the Iraqi or to Iraqis' concerns and needs, not to outside needs. And here is some evidence. Sectarian voting changing in Sunni areas. As you can see here, the percentages of Sunni who will vote for uh, Al-Abadi is 36%. And percentages of Sunnis who will vote for Al-Hajd al-Shaabi is 5%. This is a new phenomenon in the Iraqi politics. If I translate this to seats, it means that 24 seats or, uh, for Al-Ibadi will be allocated by Sunnis, not by Shias, which is more than one third of what he expects to receive. So this is a new, as I've told you, new phenomenon in, in the Iraqi. Not only this. If you look carefully to this uh, graph, which showed the allocations of seats in different parliaments in Iraq, 2004, which we call Al-Jam'iyya Al-Wataniyya in Iraq, or, uh, and uh, 2005, 2000. As you can see, we have Islamic coalition, secular movement, mix, and minorities. Always. Islamists control the, the scene, uh, sorry, uh, the, the blue one. So always more than 50% of the seats allocated to Islamists. Now, what's expected in, in 2018? This 52% and on 2014 will drop down to 23%. Versus a high increase or a real jump in the mix from 7% to 33%. So one third will be allocated for a mixed parties. And I buy mixed list. I mean this, I don't know, I don't know how to, to it's a heterogeneous uh, mixture between Islamist and non-Islamist parties. Those, they will get 33%. And the secular also will drop down to 12%. Islamic parties are declining in Shia's areas. As you can see, on 2014, almost 90% almost 90% of the seats went to Islamic parties versus almost 
What is expected right now is this will be declined to 65%, a significant declining in that, versus 35% will go to non-Islamic parties. In Kurdistan, old guard versus a newcomer. And by old guard, I mean all those who run for previous elections. So these took 82% at that time versus Al-Taghir, or uh, they took only 18%. They were newcomers at that time. Now we regard them as an old guard as well. So now this 82% will drop down to 70%. And we have newcomers, 26%. So the landscape is changing and changing significantly. I know that in USA, most people are interested in this part. So we will present some, I think, interesting data. Who will be the next prime minister? Can regional powers still play the same old role nominating the next prime minister? As everyone knows that the regional power was behind nominating most prime ministers before in Iraq. Or at least they, were, they played a main role in that. Now, is, will it be the case again? Let us see what the numbers telling us. So the, the scenario that I will put here about the Iranian influence in the new parliament it's based on three assumptions. Without these assumptions, this scenario cannot be valid. The first is election, if elections happen now. The second, if the parties act according to stated position. Because in the Iraqi politics, some parties, they say or they give some public statements, but actually they act in a different way. So I've tried to evaluate the situation according to the stated position toward Iran. And the third is no serious fraud happens, hopefully. So as you can see, I've divided the list to pro-Iranian parties, con-Iranian parties. And for the pro-Iranian parties, we have hard and soft. And the con-Iranian parties, hard and soft. Again, some people might argue that this classification is not correct. But this is based on the public statements, again. So in the hard, we put al-Fatih. Al-Fatih, again, it's the al-Amiri. State of law, al-Maliki, expecting 56 seats for them, both in the, in the next election. In the soft side of pro-Iranian, we put al-Hikmah, which is the new name. And this is a new evidence that a cleric like al-Hakim 
is choosing non-Islamic name for his new party, which means Al-Hikmah. Small part of Al-Dasr, because there are small parts in Al-Abadi uh, alliance who are, who can be classified as a soft, not hard, soft pro-Iranian. Al-Salam, Kurds traditional alliance, the PUK and KDP, and those expect, I'm expecting to get 30 seats for them. On the other side, the hard, we have all Sunnis lists uh, and Al-Wataniya, Al-Lawi, Al-Qarar, Nujayfi, Arab Coalition, Al-Khanjar, and others. Not more than 20 seats expected for this because Al-Abadi took a lot from these people, from this list. Soft, con Iranian, majority of Al-Nasr, of Al-Abadi, Sadras, Nishtiman, the new Kamar in the Kurds uh, scene, and the new generation. These around 115 seats will make. So it's up to you to make any combination you want or to imagine any alliance which will take place under the, uh, sorry, after the election. But in general, the expected power map, the Iranian favorite, those who are favored by Iranians, or let us say, if Iran has to hope, it will not get more than 80 to 95 seats or a real supporters versus, oh, sorry. Versus independent and or supported by other regional and international powers. Those who might be supported, there are some independent, there are some people, some lists supported by some Arab countries, by Tur Turk or even USA. So these expecting uh, or expected to gain 130 to 150 seats. Again, and it's up to you to imagine what kind of coalitions, negotiation will take place after the election. So as you, I have put also, I made some, some guessings. I put some scenarios. And this is scenario number one, which I expected for the coming election. The coalition number one, which is Al-Nasr, Al-Abadi, Al-Wataniya, Al-Lawi, Al-Qarar, Al-Nujayfi, Sa'irun, Al-Sadr, Al-Hikmah, Al-Hakim, Nishtiman, and Barham Saleh, Goran, and KIG, a new generation, Sashwar, Arab coalition, Al-Khanjar. Those expected to, to go in one coalition, 
they will get around 141 seats. By the way, the, the prime minister needs two-thirds of the total seats of the, of the parliament. So he will still not have the, the two-thirds. And the other coalition, expected coalition, is Al-Fatih, Al-Amri, State of Law, Al-Maliki, Al-Salam, Kurdistan, so KDP and PUK. This is why they will get 77. This is why I say that the small parties will play a vital role because no coalition can collect two-thirds. Coalition, this is a scenario number two. So we have uh, Al-Nasr, Al-Wataniya, Al-Qarar, Sairun, Al-Hikmah, Nishtiman, New Generation, Arab Coalition, Al-Khanjar. Here we have Al-Fatih, State of Law, Al-Maliki, Al-Salam, Kurdistan, PUK. So this is expected to have 77 versus 141. Other scenarios, still possible. But mainly, there will be big lists, and the leverage will be by small parties. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we, as usual, have a group of expert microphone carriers, so I wish you would wait for the microphone to show up. Uh, I would also appreciate it if we kind of concentrated on questions mm -hmm. rather than short speeches, and if you would identify yourselves as you stand up or get the microphone so people have some idea what your affiliation is. I'm going to take just one question, if I may. Uh, as you did your polling, did you have enough access to the areas where the fighting was concentrated yes. in the West yeah. to get a view of how the people affected by the fighting might have differed from the rest of the population? Yeah. Thank you for this question. Uh, it's important. Because as I've referred here, uh, around one-third of expected seats for Al-Abadi will come from Sunnis, pure Sunnis areas, mainly from Mosul. Mainly from Mosul. Uh, the, the numbers showed that he is number one in Mosul by far from the next Sunni leader. So, yes, uh, I have an access to Al-Anbar, Mosul, uh, Salah al-Din, all areas occupied by Daesh. And this is, I think, this is a sign of appreciation. I mean, people putting their confidence, especially in Mosul, they really, and this, is, this comes also from the focus groups which we did there, 
they showed a high level of appreciation to Al-Abadi. Knowing that he is that even when we, we have tried to probe them to say something negative about him by saying that, but he is from al from, from Dawa party, and he is Shias, they just don't care about that. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, who would like to ask a question? Uh, the lady in the third row there. Pat Burke Stresser, and I'm now with uh, Communication Strategy Network, but I was in Iraq in 2005. And I am just curious as to how long you anticipate the process to be once the election is over, because don't they negotiate to, to figure out who's going to be PM within? Yeah. Thank you. Well, based on the previous election, uh, especially now, I think it will take a long time. It will take a quite long time. Yeah. Uh, before going to the next uh, question, I have to thank the Mr. Ambassador uh, for his attendance, the Iraq Ambassador here. Really thank and appreciate his attendance here. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Let's see, next question. Uh, I think the My name is Andy Snow. I'm the State Department Fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace right now. Thank you both for your fascinating presentations. I have two different questions, one for Mr. Daher and one for Mr. Cordesman. Uh, for Mr. Daher, could you elaborate a little more on why, in your likely scenarios, you put the KDP-PUK coalition in with the more pro-Iranian group. I find that I, I'm not so surprised about PUK. I'm a little more surprised yes. about KDP. If you could yeah. go into a little more on that. Yeah. And for Mr. Cordesman, uh, I'm so appreciative of your mentioning the demographic pressure issue. And you also mentioned it in a report you put out a few months ago that was broader than just Iraq. It was on the whole Arab region. Why do you think that you're one of the few analysts sort of broader policy analysts looking at the region who highlights that issue. Why do you think that's so underreported? And it's even more acute issue, in my opinion, or just looking at the data in sub-Saharan Africa. So why is that so under-discussed? Thank you. Uh, for my question, the why I put the KDP and PUK together, because they are now alliance. I know that they, are, they have different, they might have different uh, positions, uh, sorry, positions against uh, or toward uh, Iran. The uh, Talibani is more pro than, uh, but based on what happened on last October when the Iraqi forces took over Kirkuk again and all these things took place between Erbil and Baghdad. The, I put this scenario, though it can be wrong, but most probably, most probably, these two parties will work together. And if they will work together, then they will be not prefer 
alert body unless something happened. Like uh, recently, the salaries of Kurds has been, have been sent there. This might change things. But till now, this is the stated, at least the stated positions of this. I don't have a good answer to your question. I think one has to be a little careful, though, because the Arab Development Reports, which have been issued since 2002, have focused very much on demographics, and particularly the youth bulge, the steadily increasing number of young men and women entering the labor force who basically have no meaningful job opportunities, which is very different from classic unemployment. If you have two people doing the job of one person with the productivity of one person, that's disguised unemployment. It also means relatively lower incomes and poor income distribution. But for example, the Arab Development Report in 2016, which is a UN report, focused on youth unemployment. I think that looking back on the Arab world and the Middle East, if you went back, say, 20 to 30 years, there was a great deal of focus on population pressure per se. Whether this is partly a reflection of sort of not necessarily religious in any serious Islamic sense, but simply the feeling that this is going to present problems in terms of the clergy is unclear. Uh, certainly, there does not seem to be broad social support for the kind of population reductions which many people predicted. They are declining, but they're not declining at anything like the rate people had originally predicted. And as a result, you've got something like, depending on the country, 13 to 17 years of people who are going to be part of this youth bulge in population pressure. It simply doesn't go away for the foreseeable future, particularly because given job age, most of them are already born. It's really a little difficult to cut the birth rate after people get born. It uh, doesn't work out too well. Um, I think the other issue that is affecting this is what do governments do? Because if you look back, one of the reasons that people shifted away from demographics was you couldn't get a broad popular reaction to birth control efforts. Uh, I can remember, for example, in Egypt they tried and eventually we kept supplying, but we ended up with things like warehouses filled with contraceptives because the government simply couldn't find the way that it could have the influence to effectively distribute them. People have to accept the program at the street, the working level, and so on. And I think one final aspect that's rather weird and a little tragic is historically, in most cases of war conflict in the past, you had significant declines in population because of disease, civilian suffering, and so on. In spite of the decline of health services, what you have had really since about 1970 to 1980 
is in wartime, more children tend to be born, or in crisis, tend to be born than during peacetime. Now they survive. And that's created a new kind of population pressure, uh, which, <clears throat> again, is young by definition. Uh, let's see, the lady in the third row back there. Um, I was could curious, you wait for the thank you. I was curious, my name is Natalie. Mike, I was curious if you could speak a little bit about, i um, curious for the reasons for some of these shifts that you're mentioning, like the shift away from ethno-sectarian alliances, uh, also, um, yeah, towards a more national identity, a less sectarian, less ethno-based one. So I'm curious why is it reaction to how they've seen politicians from these parties uh, behave and, and work? So I'm curious on your thoughts, both of your thoughts on that. Uh, I would say that there are three main reasons. The first reason in Sunni's areas. ISIS was behind this. I mean, after Sunnis experienced the nightmare of Daesh, uh, they review their positions toward the government and toward also the extreme Sunnis leaders. This is why they are not getting anything in this or they, they won't get anything in the next election. The second is, in general, but particular in the Shias areas, the government which has been chosen based on sectarian affiliation since 2004, or 2006, 2010, 2014, failed to deliver anything to, to this. And if you look to numbers, you will see the highest rate of unemployment is in the Shias areas. The, uh, there are many other indications that shows very well that Shias have not uh, benefited from the Shias government anymore. So they are, they are leaving that uh, model. And I think the third is the, especially the, the continuous decline in Iranian favorability among Shias due to economic reasons and some uh, other reasons like drugs, for instance, which is a huge problem right now in Iraq. Could I ask you, you have explained in a great deal of depth what a lot of people are against. But one question is, what do these parties that are emerging now stand for? Are they being supported because of the character of their leaders, because they, or do they actually have programs? Are they presenting something that to the possible voter that offers some plan for the future or set of goals? Uh, unfortunately, I would like to, to answer yes, they have a program. No one party has one prop, uh, a 
program for the future. Nothing, nothing in that regards. But the good thing about it is that they know that the street will not convince with the ethno-sectarian previous narrative. That's why they are using new narratives, just new narratives, whether they will be honest in this, nar or in this narrative or not, this is, uh, will be shown by, by the next days. But the good thing is that they are moving the old bad models. Sorry, leaving the old bad uh, models. But I cannot say that they really have a good program or uh, any plan for, for the future. It's just public statements, just uh, uh, general things, nothing uh, more no, than I, that. I, I don't know why, but that seems vaguely familiar. Uh, <laughs> the gentleman in, in the Arab world, not only in Iraq, you mean. The gentleman in the fourth row. <laughs> I was a little closer to home. Actually. <laughs> Hi, William Lawrence, uh, George Washington University. Um, uh, two questions. Number one, uh, I came in late, and I know you said something about youth votes, but I don't think you spoke too much about low youth voting rates. And in, mo in most Arab countries, the, the voting rates for youth are particularly low, and I just wondered what the rates were. And my second question is about election observation. If you could say something about who's observing and what, how that plays out uh, politically in the Iraqi context. Well, for the, the second part of the election observation, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not the right guy to, to be asked this question because this is out of my uh, expertise. But on the first uh, part, uh, till 2014, youth were following the same patterns of old. I mean, they were voting based on ethno-sectarian groupings, even youth. Now, my current data, unfortunately, I received it uh, when I was uh, boarding to the plane. So. I had to, to spend five, six hours on the plane just preparing this presentation. So I didn't make the breakdown on that. I have the data for sure. Uh, so I might share it with you later on if my clients allow me to share that with, with you. But my expectations based on different other points of checking during, for public opinion in Iraq during the last two years there is a significant change in the Iraqis, young, uh, young Iraqis' attitudes, uh, especially toward uh, secular parties and sectarian, uh, uh, sorry, and sectarian parties. They are less sectarian now uh, than they, they were. They are more, I don't say secular, but they are more pragmatic looking for better life, not for the victory of their sect. This gentleman in the front row.
Hi, my name is Gabriel. I'm with the KRG. I had a question about uh, the political landscape and how that could affect um, relations between Erbil and Baghdad over the next few months. So over the past few weeks, we've seen improvements in relations between Erbil and Baghdad. Um, but given changes in, uh, in the political landscape today, how do you foresee over the next few weeks that affecting uh, dialogue and cooperation between Baghdad and Erbil? Well, uh, nothing can be expected in the Iraqi politics, as so this is the, the normal wisdom. Uh, but uh, based on what uh, I witnessed during the last few weeks, I can see that there, there is an improvement in the situation. So the, the alignment will, might be changed. But till now, till today, it is as I described it. This will, this might be changed uh, a little bit, especially if uh, Al Abadi keep going in this direction of more cooperation with Kurdistan uh, government. I think this will be soon reflected on the uh, on the people and their mood, especially if salaries delivered to them because they are really suffering from uh, being not uh, paid for uh, quite long months. Yeah. Uh, the gentleman over there. Hi, Christopher Jennings, I'm U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, unfortunate that the parties don't have a developed program to address the needs of yes. citizens. Have the citizens have an expectation beyond aspirations for jobs and corruptions of the type of public sector reforms they need? I'm, I am struck by just how dominant the public sector is in crowding out private sector um, growth and uh, market-based um, job growth. Um, is there a connection to the population of the citizens you've surveyed to that bigger issue of public sector reform? Yeah. Uh, the, as you correctly referred to, I mean, people, they have uh, very high expectations, which is, in a way, might be very dangerous. Uh, because if it is not met, as usual, and I know that the Iraqi government does not have the resources. Unfortunately, the Kuwait conference was not that uh, good in providing this, these resources. Corruption is a huge problem, which will prevent this uh, help from the international community or even from the central government to go there. Still, people, they have these hopes. Uh, but uh, let me say, they will be happy enough if corruption is dealt with than building their houses. I mean, for them, the top priority is fighting corruption. Top priority is fighting pro uh, corruption. Uh, and uh, till now, th there are some statements about fighting corruption, but things on the ground is, are not uh, so, so good. Uh, yet the the momentum of freeing these areas, uh, people still feel that they are much better now. Uh, they wait. How long they will wait? 
I can see a very clear signs, especially in Ambar, about people started appealing uh, or sorry, started uh, to be impatient about providing more uh, services uh, to them, which will be the biggest mistake by the government and, and by the international community because Daesh terrorists are still there. And I think that the first prior priority now, as you, uh, Anthony, correctly referred, is the civil and human needs. It's much more important than fighting or focusing on the security issues. I think that if all of you are not familiar with it, it's really worth looking at the World Bank's systemic diagnostic, uh, which is the only thing I've seen that really cites the scale of the economic problems in Iraq. Yes. Uh, one of the problems I think we have really not addressed in the U.S is the challenges the Iraqi government faces. They've been spending 11% of the gross domestic product on security. Uh, most of NATO spends under 2%, and we spend under 4 That's an incredible burden. You have an economy where it has to cope with petroleum prices, which are still something well under 50% of lower than they used to be at yeah. the peak of income. And Iraq obviously does not have the most efficient distribution and development yes. of its resources as yes. yet. More than 60% of the annual budget is salaries going to public yeah. uh, employees. So the more IMF, than 60%. I think, pointed yeah. out in one of its reports that Iraq leads in one economic area, it has the highest wage for its state-owned enterprise sector in yeah. the region. Yeah. Uh, it has one of the lowest actual outputs yeah. from the state-owned enterprise sector. But these are issues where I think the question of expectations you raised, Monquith, is critical because it's not clear the government has or can do miracles. No. And, you know, you mentioned you were from AID, but just consider the history of sudden movements toward economic development and wealth, which, barring, I can think of petroleum as a temporary case, there is no quick answer to these problems. Uh, I think some of you who have read the economic history of Iraq uh, may realize that the problem in the farming sector began to become more and more acute after the fall of the monarchy. Yeah. And that's a long, long way back. Yeah. Investment in industrial sector output in 1979 to 1980 actually produced a net decline in output partly because of the Iran-Iraq war and partly because they bought lots of turnkey projects. So as you mentioned with the Kuwait conference, the other issue is what were they raising money to do? Mm -hmm. You know, asking people for aid money without having any goals or plans 
has not historically been the best thing in the world. But anyway, uh, the next question is this gentleman here, please. Hi, uh, Charles Rogan, Artists International. I just wanted to uh, expand upon the lady's point earlier. Do you think that the move away from sectarian political identities is a strategic move or more of an actual ideological shift? Because the history of Iraq has really shown over four decades the appropriation of religion for political and strategic reasons. So I was just wondering what, you know, what the balance is there. I know you mentioned that there were ideological shifts because of what ISIS did, for example. But at the other hand, you know, on the other side, there are clearly strategic reasons at play. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate. The, the one thing that I'm sure about it is that the, the leaving or leaving sectarianism is a strategic path for Iraqis right now. Uh, how successful this will be, what will happen next day, there are many other uh, factors which can happen on the ground, having uh, incidents uh, like uh, what happened in the explosion of uh, the, uh, the these two thumbs in uh, in Samarra back on 2006 may destroy everything. Uh, the economic factor, uh, if government is not uh, delivering. Uh, as it expected, then for sure Sunnis will not uh, have their honeymoon with the government for a long time. Uh, Shias uh, extremists will soon, and we can see now some movements of extremists uh, Shias in, in the south. So this all can affect the, the, the general sectarian uh, versus secular movement. But one thing that I'm sure about it, based on public opinion right now in Iraq, most Iraqis totally convinced that sectarianism is the worst or was the worst recipe for the future of Iraq. Please. Alexander Kravitz from Insight, thank you for a great presentation. I have two questions. One is, I wonder, you know, at the end, it's going to be the Shia house that's going to decide who among them is going to be the prime minister. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you could speculate perhaps on what might be some factors, what might be the challenges that Abadi would have to reach or not reach the premiership? Mm -hmm. That's the first question. And the second one is, how do you think the results on the federal election for the PUK, uh, KDP, you know, the traditional uh, parties in, in the Kurdistan, might affect the regional elections that have yet to be scheduled in the Kurdistan region. Mm -hmm. Thank you. For the first question, the Shia house, or what used to be the Shia house, and right now it's nothing called Shia house in, in Iraq, uh, for two reasons. Uh, and officially, there is no Shia house, but it, the Shia bloc is so segmented, so fragmented. And I think it will be very difficult, very difficult, even for Iran, to bring them again 
into one entity to decide on the next prime minister. That does not mean that they won't have uh, a power on the next uh, prime minister, or if, if Al-Ibadi succeeded in, in that. But it means that the influence of the Shias uh, house will be much less. And by the current alignment between different segments in the Shia's house uh, for the next election, it's very clear that they realize that their street, their people, get sick with this tone of, so there must be a uh, they will be responsive. Even Iran. Iran, we know that it's more pragmatic that, than, than other, uh, or than, uh, other countries in the region, more pragmatic. It will respond to, to that. And uh, at the other hand, if Shias realize, and Al-Ibadi realize that the major votes he got was from Sunnis, then he will think twice before going in a sectarian way. So he will oppose these pressures. Uh, these are my guesses, speculations. It, can't be, it can be wrong, but uh, this is, I think it will be uh, not smart for any political leader right now uh, to act in a sectarian uh, in a sectarian way because he will be punished for the next election. The trend is very clear. The trend towards sectarianism and secularity is very clear. Uh, so, uh, and I think they know about it. So, uh, the influence of the Shia's uh, house will be less this time for sure will be less. That does not mean, again, it won't have uh, influence, but uh, it will be less. The, the second question about what implications of, on the regional Kurdistan, I think uh, it's, it will be a good test for the, for the power for the regional uh, Kurdistan uh, election. But for sure, uh, KDP, PUK lost a lot. And uh, you cannot get the wheel back uh, again. They cannot uh, do that. They are trying. They are trying very hard uh, in different ways. Uh, but I think the Kurds people now uh, less uh, they have less uh, attitudes or, or um, more negative attitudes toward the traditional parties. They won't go in, in that direction anymore. Uh, the gentleman in back. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, the yes. Ambassador, yeah. Hello, uh, I'm the Iraqi Ambassador. Thank you for acknowledging me. And I apologize for coming late. I had another engagement. Uh, Dr. Munder is somebody whose speeches I never miss. I always learn a lot. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for your presentation. And thank you, Tony, for uh, arranging this. Uh, 
uh, Tony was my host, my, my guest in Baghdad for a memorable event at the foreign ministry, and we still talk about it. Uh, uh, these these uh, trends have been ongoing. You know, uh, the typical example that I give is the Supreme Council, mm -hmm. who had uh, named their list in 2010 the list of the martyr of the altar. Yes. And they got clobbered. And four years later, they came back with a better secular name, which is the list of the citizen. Mm -hmm. And th they did a lot better. Um, and now they've removed the Islamic name from there. They've split in two parts. Um, but one, one, one community that is beginning to emerge, uh, thanks to the passage of time, many people who were identified with the former regime, civil servants, professors, uh, people like that, are coming back through different groups. Uh, what do they represent? Uh, do they have, is there a community that would vote for them? Would, where would they go once the negotiations take place uh, after the elections in terms of uh, setting up a government and choosing a prime minister? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Your Excellency. I, I think there is an exaggeration in the social media and the news about those who are coming back from the old regime. I think there is an, some kind of an exaggeration. But let me tell you something. For the public opinion in, in Iraq, and this is my domain, I don't know what will happen in the negotiation, but the public opinion in general in Iraq uh, does not, uh, and we have asked this question many times, uh, does not uh, or do not have any negative attitudes towards these people. And actually in, in some areas, even not, uh, not expected, I mean, like Kurdistan, they welcome it. So I don't think that uh, there will be a problem in, in that. The, but this, I mean, the, the campaigns are starting in Iraq, or started. And they, everyone, every party wants to put some flame. And to, uh, that's why they boost some news to make because fear is the most dominant uh, factor in any election. So if they, if they succeed in making fear among Iraqis, then sectarianism will go back again. So that's why we can see, especially on the social media, I saw a lot of these news, but uh, in fact, as you can see, for instance, the Sunnis, the extremist Sunnis, they will not gain more than 10 seats this time. So even if those wants to, to come back, they won't have this weight in the, and they won't affect a lot the, the, the next election. This is my expectation. Ladies and gentlemen, we're coming to the end of the meeting. Does someone have a urgent last question? Well then, let me 
ask you to thank Munquith in the traditional manner. Thank you. <laughs>